Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Miracle of the Mundane. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 5th, 2016. In her new book by the title Strange Gods, A Secular History of Conversion, 2016, the atheist journalist Susan Jacoby appeals to what she calls earthly forces to explain why people change religions. Things like politics, economics, slavery, or, as in her own family history, interfaith marriages. In Galatians, Paul experienced something like this purely human explanation for his own encounter with the divine. Oddly enough, in his case, it came from fellow Christians who were dismissive of his claims of apostolic authority. After all, Paul had never even seen the earthly Jesus. Paul vehemently rejects any notion that his message originated from any human source. The gospel I preached is not something man made up, he says. This is why he also wrote to the Thessalonians. When you received the word of God from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God. Paul's apostolic confidence was rooted in the experience of his dramatic conversion. Like his gospel preaching, he says that his Damascus Road experience could not be adequately explained by what Jacoby calls earthly forces. And so he reminds the Galatians of his previous way of life in Judaism and subsequent radical conversion. Part of me wishes that I could experience something unmistakably miraculous like Paul's conversion the blinding light, the voice from heaven, and the confidence and conviction that flowed from that experience. But, alas, that's not where I live. I'm grateful that conversion is a lifetime experience, and that the miraculous is in fact often found in the mundane. I resonate more with the two other stories for this week, the two widows from Zarephath, in name. These two widows are examples of one of the remarkable aspects of the biblical narratives, observes Owen King, that it often gives voice not just to the powerful and the famous, like the Apostle Paul or King David, but also to the marginal and the obscure. Indeed, says Owen King, this is something that is all too uncommon in literature, past and present. The vast majority of us, he notes, live unremarkable and ordinary lives, just like the unnamed widows of Nain and Zarephath. The story about the widow of Nain occurs only in Luke, who places it right after a story about another obscure outsider, a Roman soldier. After healing the centurion's servant in Capernaum, Jesus and his disciples walked 25 miles southwest to the village of Nain. 
Luke says that a large crowd accompanied Jesus and his disciples. When they entered the town, they met what Luke calls another large crowd that was leaving the village. It was, in fact, a funeral procession. And so the two large crowds met, the followers of Jesus and the mourners of Nain. The corpse, we read, was the only son of his mother, which meant that this woman faced double jeopardy. She had been a widow, and now she was childless. As if her fragile life wasn't hard enough, she fell further down the economic scale of protection and provision. All she had to live for and to live by was gone. When the two crowds met and Jesus encountered the widow, Luke says his heart went out to her in a spontaneous act of compassion. No one had asked him to do anything. No one had recognized him. But the sights and sounds were too much for Jesus. Moved to compassion, he told her, don't cry. He then touched the coffin, raised the man to life, and gave him back to his mother. The story of Elijah begins with a foreign widow from Zarephath, who at great personal sacrifice cared for him during a severe drought, and who in turn was cared for by Elijah. This narrative of, an, of another nameless widow and a Hebrew prophet offering each other mutual care across nationalistic boundaries assumes such central importance in Israel's sacred storytelling that Jesus repeated it about a thousand years later in his own day. The impact was the same. The listeners were outraged at the role reversals. We read in Luke 4, Jesus says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of enemy Sidon. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. These two widows remind me that the logic of divine providence is not only ironic, but frequently counterintuitive. To take another example, the traditional and normal expectation in much of the Bible is that the divine blessing and the right of inheritance and succession belong to the firstborn. We call this primogeniture. But time and time again, God breaks the rules and blesses the younger and not the older. The least important, not the most privileged. The poor and not the rich. Andre Aseman calls this deuterogenitor, the unexpected blessing of the second placer. He observes how the Old Testament teems with instances of this reverse blessing that favors the second-born. Think of Abel, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, Judah, Moses, David, Solomon, all of whom were younger siblings. In his poem, Miracle, 
The Irish poet Seamus Haney takes this mundane and counterintuitive perspective. He focuses not on the paralytic and the miraculous healing in Mark chapter 2, but on his unnamed friends who showed up to help and lowered him through the roof to put him in a place of healing. Listen to the poem. Not the one who takes up his bed and walks, but the ones who have known him all along and carry him in. Their shoulders numb, the ache and stoop deep-locked in their backs, the stretcher handles slippery with sweat, and no let-up until he's strapped on tight, made tiltable and raised to the tile roof, then lowered for healing. Be mindful of them as they stand and wait for the bum of the paid-out ropes to cool, their slight light-headedness and incredulity to pass, those ones who had known him all along. While we wish for signs and wonders, for the parting of the seas, for the lightning bolt of a Damascus Road conversion, we risk missing the miracle of the mundane. Like our friends and family who show up when we need them, the ones who have known us all along. Like the paralytic's friends in the gospel, or the widow who helped Elijah, these ordinary, obscure, and unsung people do their parts to get us where we need to go, within earshot and arm's reach of our healing, the earthbound, everyday miracle of forbearance and forgiveness, the help in dark times to light the way, the ones who show, us where, show, show up when there is trouble to save us from our hobbled, heart-wrecked selves. And so, says Shamus Haney, be mindful of them. For books this week, I review a new title by Mary Beard. The title of the book, SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome, New York, W.W. W. Norton, 2015. This book is 600 in six pages long. Mary Beard, professor of classics at Cambridge University and a rebel rock star in England for her blog, A Dawn's Life, has spent 50 years thinking about Rome, what it meant to be Roman, and why that still matters today. It's not that we need to learn from the Romans, she says, but we do have a lot to learn by engaging with the Romans in the history of Rome. Western civilization has various roots, but since the Renaissance at least, many of our most fundamental assumptions about power, citizenship, responsibility, political violence, empire, luxury, and beauty have been formed and tested in dialogue with the Romans and their writing. And so, Mary Beard tells the 1,000-year story 
From the mythical founding of Rome in 753 BCE to the year 2012 CE, when Emperor Caracalla made every free inhabitant a full Roman citizen. Of how a little town by the Tiber River grew into a global superpower of 50 million people. Even the Romans, at least many of the literary elite, became self-conscious of their historical identity. Writing in about the year 200 BCE, the Greek historian Polybius asked, who could be so indifferent or so idle that they did not want to find out how and under what kind of political organization almost the whole of the inhabited world was conquered and fell under the sole power of the Romans in less than 53 years, something previously unparalleled. Beard takes as her organizing template the shorthand slogan SPQR, which stands for, in Latin, Senatus Populus Q Romanus, the Senate and People of Rome. This acronym of civic graffiti was plastered all over Rome, on manhole covers, garbage bins, and the like. It identified the two components of political power in Roman history, the Senate and the Roman people, and, by extension, the tension between dictatorship and democracy in all their changing iterations, along with the ideas of shared power, election by popular vote, for male citizens, that is, limited terms in office, just war, civil disobedience, the rule of law, homeland security, taxation, military conscription, censuses and the classification of people, polytheistic religion, in short, everything concerning the res publica, the public thing. Beard's book is a model of sparkling prose, meticulous research, fascinating storytelling, and cautious history about what historians can and can't reliably reconstruct 2,000 years after the fact. With no desire to mythologize or demonize, she's quick to separate fact and fiction. A special treat is her broad expertise in material culture, seen in the 100-plus plates and illustrations. Everything from coins, plaques, urns, vases, and jewelry to the remains of garbage pits. It's hard to describe most 600-page histories as a page-turner, but this is definitely one of them. Once again, Mary Beard, SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome. For movies this week, I review Eye in the Sky from the year 2016. This thriller by the director Gavin Hood considers the many complexities of drone warfare in the digital age. The military mission that's presented seems both simple and good. A British colonel named Catherine Powell orders the capture of a group of al-Shabaab terrorists in Nairobi. 
But then comes mission creep, when capture morphs into a secret drone strike to kill. Is that escalation warranted? A cascade of questions then follows. There are ambiguous military rules of engagement, murky assessments of collateral damage, the citizenship of the targets, political fallout for what you do and don't do, the winner of the propaganda game, depending on the outcome, technological limits and failures. Most troubling of all, there are deeply ethical questions in the human beings who make the decisions. At the end of the film, a moralizer says what happened was disgraceful, to which a general responds, what happened was horrible, but what might have happened would have been worse. Don't ever tell a soldier that he doesn't know the costs of war. And so the film opens with a quotation by the Greek dramatist Askoslelis from 500 BC. In war, truth is the first casualty. Sometimes what's true and good isn't very clear. When I watched this film, it enjoyed a 93% rating on the tomato meter. Once again, Eye in the Sky, a fictional dramatization of drone warfare. We continue this week for poetry, John Berryman's 11 Addresses to the Lord. This is Address to the Lord, Number six. Under new management, your majesty, thine. I have soloed mine since childhood. Since my father's blow-it-all when I was twelve blew out my most bright candle faith. And look at me. I served mass six dawns a week from five, adoring Father Boniface and you memorizing the Latin, he explained. Mostly we worked alone, one or two women. Then my poor father frantic, confusions and afflictions followed my days. Wives left me. Bankrupt, I closed my doors. You pierced the roof twice and again. Finally, you opened my eyes. My double nature fused in that point of time three weeks ago, day before yesterday. Now, brooding through a history of the early church, I identify with everybody, even the heresiarchs. Address to the Lord, number six, by John Berryman. John Berryman lived from 1914 to 1972. I've taken these poems from a book called John Berryman Collected Poems, 1937 to 1971. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 5th, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.